Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, We've seen markets uh, retrench a little bit uh, in the rally that kicked off the the start of the year. Uh, But there are always opportunities. And what we're going to start off with today is talking about about Japan. And I looked up when Big in Japan, that song by Alphaville, was released. And it was released in 1984 for those with a a long memory. And that was, of course, a year before the 1985 Plaza Accord, which was where G7 members met at the Plaza Hotel in New York in order to have a strategy for dealing with the very strong dollar that had arisen from the Volcker and Reagan reforms. Uh, And they were successful, but they were successful in a rather uh, unhelpful way because they gave a massive tailwind to the Japanese boom that was underway that led to the most spectacular Japanese asset valuation bubble Uh, at the end of the 1980s, where at one point on some comparative valuation data, the site of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo uh, was worth more than all the real estate in California. And the bubble sits there as this huge event in certainly Japanese uh, experience, but also from a global financial point of view. And I guess it's sort of redolent and echoes through time. And so often we find conversations about Japan referencing back to that bust and the way in which Japanese policymakers have been trying to deal with it uh, ever since. And I suppose that leads into the news uh, that came out uh, recently that there's a new central bank governor of the Bank of Japan, Kazuo Ueda, uh, who has been appointed. And I think, therefore, Robert, that's a nice segue to ask you uh, what you think of that. What um, What does his appointment mean and what does that prefigure for Japanese monetary policy, and I suppose then more generally for the Japanese economy. So I, I think, as often with these uh, appointments, they ca- they can uh, sort of lead to regime shift. And in this case, Kuroda was quite a a key pivotal figure within Abenomics, within that sort of push to regenerate uh, Japan and drive inflation. Um, and it's quite a big policy shift that happened before. So the question mark now is really, is the choice of governor marking another regime shift? And what, why does it matter? I suppose it matters because at this very moment, inflation in Japan is suddenly uh, perking back to life. We sort of have a, the, the highest inflation in Japan really in 40 years, um, core inflation X food is a, around 4%. So we're starting to see that inflation finally um, come back to, to Japan. And also we're seeing on the negative side, some of the big 
impacts of of the the extreme policy measures that were undertaken. So in Japan was really the poster child for the rest of the world of going to these extraordinary monetary policy measures with negative interest rates, massive asset purchases, and also the, the, the piece of yield curve control, trying to actually control not just short-term rates, but control interest rates along the curve. So Japan really has been the canary in the coal mine. And now the, the question mark, I suppose, is are we going to see a shift in policy in Japan and how will that affect the rest of the world? And why it matters is because that policy, as with any measure, the big measure has its first order effects, but you always have to think about second order side effects. And in terms of negative interest rate policy, the question mark really has been for a long time about the the impact to the wider financial market system and infrastructure. Um, So the the distortions to the banking system in Japan uh, being one of the, the, the big downsides, really, of, of the policy measures. And as we've seen, the market front-running perhaps a bit of this policy change, uh, bank shares in Japan are starting starting to rally. And more broadly, I think Japan was the big uh, funding centre for the rest of the world, always with the lowest interest rates, the world's liquidity source, and so uh, Japanese capital flowed out of Japan into the rest of the world. So it helps to keep interest rates in the rest of the world pegged to some degree. So what's the market expecting? The market is expecting somewhat of a change. And we're seeing that on interest rate policy. Uh, in, in December, we saw somewhat of a surprise where the, the, the band of the, the 10-year was allowed to rise a little bit. But really, we're already seeing now overnight um, uh, OIS spreads for, for overnight index swaps for 10 years are already starting to, to go higher than, than the uh, 50 basis points limit. So the market is suggesting that limit is going to be removed. Um, and that does have impact in the rest of the world. Uh, and we don't really know exactly. I think that's, that's the point. When you have these big shifts of monetary policy, it can have financial accidents occurring, like the sort of thing we saw in the UK at the end of last year. A long period of low interest rates. Suddenly, we had some of the shocks around the, the trust policy announcements and um, interest rates rising really quickly. And we saw some of the UK pension players caught out. So the risk of a financial accident is relatively high. So I think it matters for the rest of the world. It matters because it's a canary in the coal mine. Um, so is this the, the big shift? I think that the question mark, I suppose, everybody's trying to dissect the, the, the uh, Ueda himself and try and see what, what he will act or what, how he will act. And I think the first market suggestion was it was going to be the deputy governor taking over and you have um, corodonomics uh, continuing. And that didn't happen. I think he maybe turned down the role. Um, but th- this uh, Ueda himself... I think is seen as more, uh, certainly not not more dovish, maybe more hawkish. I think he sits actually somewhere in the middle. And that's arguably a good thing. So he's an academic. He's a bit of an outsider. Uh, In Japan, there's the big power play between the Bank of Japan trying to control monetary policy, central bank independence, and the Ministry of Finance, um, who want the Treasury to really to be in control and wanted sort of tighter money. Um, and you often see the figures, this, this battle between the two sides. He sits somewhere in between. He's an academic who's taught members of the establishment on both sides. And I think his pedigree is very strong as well. He, he, was t- he uh, studied at MIT under Stanley Fisher. And Stanley Fisher himself, I suppose, has one of the, the, the most storied um, 
academic uh, heritage of anybody in that uh, he taught both Ben Bernanke, Mario Draghi, many of the big players um, of the world. So that heritage would suggest he's a bit more dovish. Um, but actually, some of his actions, and in the past, he was in the early 2000s, he was against the first rate hike that happened. Uh, so he's a bit dovish there. But more recently, I think he's been more open to, to worrying about some of these financial market distortions. So arguably, he's somewhere in between. We don't really know where he is. But alongside the changing governor, he's maybe not as dovish, and also inflation now coming out of a range of, of or out of the, the range of worry on the downside uh, and the and the the, uh, the change in the uh, prime minister in Japan looking to actually uh, change the Bank of Japan mandate I think the market is sort of with bated breath wondering what's going to happen uh, but at the moment probably tip veering more towards the side of actually this could mean the yen could strengthen from its very weak position. Thank you. And and we talked about how uh, you see uh, Japan, Japanese equities, and particularly um, the the value end of the Japanese equity spectrum being a being an attractive place to be. And I suppose that links more generally to uh, a, a view we have, which is that investing outside the US is a key part of our strategy looking forward. And I wonder, Robert, if you could go from Japan and talk a little bit about how uh, how we think about emerging markets and the opportunity uh, that exists there. Yeah. So I think emerging markets fits very much, as you, as you mentioned, in the bigger picture regime shift. The US captured a lot of the attention, a lot of the performance of the last 10 years. And arguably, we're shifting to this new investment regime. So we start with a lot of countries outside the US looking materially cheaper. So there's value elsewhere in the rest of the world. Japan was one example, but emerging markets broadly is another example. Emerging markets start at one of the, the, the cheap moments of, of the last um, 30 years. Um, so starting with a cheap, cheap uh, equity market is good news. Starting with a cheap currency as well, more broadly, most emerging market currencies look relatively cheap against the dollar. I think that, again, is another key tailwind for the, for the period ahead. I think somewhat differently to the past, arguably, a lot of emerging markets are lower risk than they were. And I think this one's a bit more multifaceted. Uh, it's not all in one direction. But more broadly, balance sheets, um, vulnerability to uh, external uh, capital flight is a bit lower than it was certainly from the mid-90s. So you, you start with a base actually where there's more risk on the balance sheet in the developed world than the US compared to the emerging markets. So I, that's not the case across every country. You do need to be differentiated. But some pockets, um, not only are they cheaper, but they can be lower risk. Why I say multifaceted? Uh, is because the risk, as usual, there, there is a lot of risk in emerging markets. Some of it, it's hard to price. And one of the hardest is geopolitical risk. And clearly, I think uh, amongst this case for actually investing in EM, one of the big decisions and points is China is a big bulk of EM. And the US-China conflict is certainly moving in a negative direction. So whether you're fully priced in the risk or not is, is the question. Um, and I think we felt last year, as more investors were feeling China's uninvestable, certainly in the short term, China became cheap and a lot of that risk was priced in. But the risk remains and the risk has not gone away. So the risk of a fragmented world 
I think we've we've got to recognise um, emerging markets does have more broadly uh, sort of heightened geopolitical risk. So starting cheap, lower risk um, overall. And I think the other um, key key benefit for uh, looking elsewhere is, as we mentioned before, the US dollar um, has been very expensive. Now, since September, October, this sort of change in, in regime, the rest of the world outperforming, the dollar um, starting to weaken. Uh, and arguably to our question, the first question about Japan, that was a sign. The yen got really weak. The Bank of Japan intervened, and we've seen quite a big snapback. But if we're looking ahead to the next five years, in a period where the US dollar could could move from a very expensive valuation to swing the other direction, that's in a market environment where rest of the world equities, emerging market in particular, benefit from a weaker dollar. The other big traditional um, fillip for, for emerging market investors uh, has been inflation and commodities. Now, that regime shift that we talked about, uh, it does look like we're in this inflationary regime, of a higher uh, inflation regime, albeit this year we're in the period of disinflation. So a disinflation cycle within that higher period of inflation. But a period of higher inflation, economic growth, commodities doing well, and again, positive environment for, for emerging markets. Um, and I think the last two factors, I think liquidity is pretty key. And we've talked about liquidity cycle in the last couple of years being really crucial. And it links a bit to the Bank of Japan. Since really October, November, we've seen liquidity start to come back into the markets. And it's not just been from uh, the US. In fact, more liquidity has come from China, China reopening, and also um, from the Bank of Japan. So those sources of liquidity into the rest of the world, Bank of Japan easing to keep interest rates low, has been a real um, important source of liquidity for the rest of the world. And as liquidity goes in, it forces all these trends of weaker dollar, rest of the world doing better against the US. Now, that's the big question mark that ties into to changes in policy in, in Japan, whether that breaks that cycle somewhat and we enter into that um, more negative recessionary environment this year. And that's the big, I think, power, power battle that's going on really is, uh, on the one hand, we're likely to see US recession still um, in the next 12 months and tighter policy in the US, but we have got this big growth impulse from China. And that's where arguably the EM works well and the rest of the world compared to US equities. Who benefits more from China reopening? Not much of the China reopening growth flows to the US. In fact, the, the beneficiaries are more uh, along the lines of other emerging markets um, and also Europe and um, Japan uh, with a lot of their exports of heavy capital goods and luxury items. So other pockets of the world benefit more from the China reopening story. So I think there's a lot of forces behind which why EM could be a good source to do well. And even when we look at, is it an area where the value spread is wide? In fact, the value spread's wider in the emerging markets than the developed markets. So it's a good hunting ground for activity. I suppose my only caution, which links to a lot of these points, yes, we're getting the the boost to growth from China. But actually, if we do enter into recessionary period in the US, that's quite a strong factor for the rest of the world. And to really benefit that EM rest of the world story, you do need to get through the period of US recession. A recessionary period is actually could lead to stronger dollar 
and uh, capital flowing back to the US. So that's the cautionary moment for, for, for sort of the medium term this year. But as we go into the years ahead, yes, there's a lot of benefit for, for looking at the um, rest of the world and emerging markets in particular. And in practice, Robert, so you, you, you know, you're caveating uh, the, the um, ex-US generally emerging markets in particular opportunity by saying, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's very likely to work in the long run, but you have to be careful of the short run where uh, in the event of, a, a, of US policy continuing to tighten in the US recession, it may well be that the, the, the fall off in the dollar and dollar valuations might, might be deferred, but it looks, you know, we feel strongly that it's something that, that's coming our way eventually. Uh, but so what in practice are we doing now? What are the um, strategies uh, that we're that we're using, particularly with regard to emerging markets? How are we how are we positioning ourselves for this this opportunity with that caveat? Hmm. So I think um, when we when we talked about uh, EM, clearly one of the key drivers at the moment, the, the big beast in the emerging market world, in the same way the US is the big beast in developed uh, equities, China is the big beast in emerging market equities. Now, China with reopening, reopening is, is a big and important event that does lead to this sort of um, spending of the, the pent-up demand. Uh, there are some, likely to be sort of unleashed some supply chain impact. So you're likely to see growth um, uh, build up in, in China, which impacts the rest of uh, emerging markets. So I think China started cheap. It was unloved last year. Um, there were the, what was the impact of the, the regulatory reforms, which maybe got overdone. Um, so I think China is an important decision. Now, within our equity allocation, we are overweight China at the moment. I think it's important, although um, uh, the, the overvaluation or sort of undervaluation from foreigners leaving the China trade was felt more in Hong Kong and offshore shares, actually, I think the place with the biggest opportunity, certainly today, is onshore Chinese equities. So I think a shares market itself is very inefficient. And more, the more so as, re, as foreigners leave, it becomes retail dominated, uh, the inefficiencies actually are likely to be larger. So being active in local Chinese shares is really important. And so there we partner with uh, specialist managers that are on the ground that can deliver that excess return. So it's a market where you can get return above um, the, the, the sort of beta, the bare, bare return of the market. So I think there is an active element as well as the, um, the more broadly China being cheap. So having active uh, Chinese equity exposure is important. Having said that, there are longer term risks um, and some of the other pockets of the emerging world are actually even cheaper, particularly, let's say, EMXX Asia, um, dominated by a lot of the commodity producers. There's a lot of cheapness and could benefit from that cycle. So they're having um, exposure to those equities. Now, mainly at the moment, we have that through passive exposure because actually those markets are quite dominated by a small number of shares. Um, so you, it's quite hard to pick the active skill in, in those markets, but uh, certainly being exposed to the broad beach at, at the right time in those markets is, is quite important. So I think that's where we've concentrated our exposure. Now, how do you balance that against the risks is, although you have more of your exposure within equities towards um, uh, emerging markets, towards China, 
you balance it actually by having more of your equity exposure hedged and protected. So actually, we have a lot more long-short exposure in equities at the moment. We have portfolio hedges. We have a reduced allocation um, overall. So in that way, we can protect ourselves against that potential earnings recession while still being overweight the markets, uh, the areas of the market like emerging markets, like China, that we believe are cheaper. So it's a balancing your overall risk as well as your relative risk within within equities. So that's the main way we're playing it at the moment. I think India is the other one that I would pull out because the big argument maybe would is, is China going to lose its preeminent um, position given the geopolitical shift? And that's a big long-term trend. It's not going to happen overnight, um, but it is being alert to maybe other areas like India, Indonesia that could benefit from that trend. Now, I think, firstly, it's too early uh, to play that. It's something to be thinking about into the future, looking um, at your research of where you're going to allocate. Um, and also, it's because India started, started very expensive. Um, now, we, there are some specific uh, threats about uh, linked link to uh, fears over corruption in India with uh, Adani in the headlines, um, which it may be leading to some of that uh, overvaluation getting um, repriced. But there's a longer term trend, I think, trying to balance your China exposure with rest of EM exposure is going to be important, but it's not something we're looking to allocate to immediately this year. Uh, as you know, I like the analogy of uh, investing being like a sound mixer where you you have a particular sound you want to generate, but you're moving a lot of um, uh, levers to get the right mix and you might want a bass to dial up the bass, but it doesn't mean you take the treble, the zero ones, ones always um, moving all of them simultaneously to to get the right the right mix. And you've um, disentangled emerging markets. It's um, too simplistic simply to group them all together. There's China and not China. There are uh, commodity producers, commodity importers. It's a very very rich mix. And uh, but commodities are an important part of the EM uh, story and uh, how different economies respond to different prices and obviously has a tremendous impact on on, on Western markets. So if we turn to uh, commodities now, they were a a bright spot. I mean, they were a bright spot if you were a commodity producer. They were not a bright spot if you were a commodity consumer. But from an investment point of view, they were a bright spot last year for a whole bunch of reasons that we, we've talked about to uh, coming out of COVID, uh, cyclical things going on within the commodity producing industry where you do get these um, uh, gluts and um, uh, and famines and then, of course, the, the war in Ukraine. But we did see them come off uh, at the end of, of 2022. So a um, couple of questions, actually, Robert, if I can group them in together. If you could just bring us up to date with where uh, commodities are now, what have we been seeing at the start of 2023, in particular linked to what we've been seeing in China, and uh, how you think about that commodity complex within portfolios, how we how we make use of it at the moment? Well, I, th I think... Commodity certainly was a story for last year, but it's a story that burnt brightest really earlier in the year. Um, and I think our commodity strategy, maybe we, we put it in the context of the last uh, three years or so. Um, I think there, there is certainly a place for commodities within um, portfolios. Commodities are a diversifier. And, and we're talking about there are ways to get exposure through commodity equities, through commodity futures directly, 
through commodity futures trading managers. So there are different ways to get exposure. But if we're thinking about the broad exposure just to buying commodities, commodities um, futures exposure, the the key part, I suppose, the key benefit is really uh, you, you get inflation protection. Now, different commodities provide different uh, um, sensitivity to inflation. Um, each of the markets has their own supply-demand dynamics. But more broadly, you, you can benefit from um, sort of inflation-sensitive assets that diversify in periods of high inflation like the 1970s. So having a small allocation makes sense most of the time. And certainly, we had a, added a bit of allocation um, in sort of 2018 to, to client portfolios. Now, the one time you really don't want to own commodities uh, is in periods of falling demand and recession. So commodities are assets which do well based on current demand. They don't anticipate like equities. They're based on current demand, supply demand dynamics, but where's the current demand at the moment? Um, so as you go in, as you enter late cycle economies, they do well. But then as soon as you tip into recession, falling demand, commodities tend to do badly. And COVID was that sudden stop of economic activity, which was really unusual and really difficult environment for commodities. So actually, in that environment, we cut our commodities broad exposure and added gold because gold was that defensive, protective um, investment for, for a period of, of sort of shock and uncertain economic environment. As we went into the start of 21 with economic recovery and reopening happening, we added back our broad commodities exposure. And sure enough, sorry, in an environment where demand really picked up, that pent-up demand from that COVID um, sort of sudden stop, commodities soared. So commodities really soared right from that base of March 2020 all the way through to sort of March to June 22. So the, the Ukraine invasion was the culmination of that cycle. Uh, and if we look at uh, sort of the Bloomberg total return index for commodities, broad commodities, they went up about 125% from the lows of 2020, just two years later to 2022. But from that peak in June, actually, although commodities were one of the good assets last year, after June, they've actually declined a long way. Um, so since the peak of June, um, the, the, the same BCOM total return index is down nearly uh, 19%. So it's nearly into bear market territory over that last period, uh, which is, is why you need to really be careful. And actually, that's one of the actions we took as we uh, in during June, as commodities started to drop, we did cut completely our commodity exposure because of that risk of recession rising, recession on the way. And I think that remains the overhang for the commodities market at the moment is if we are in late cycle stage and the chance of US recession, and there are a lot of indicators pointing in that direction, it isn't really a, a period where you want to be owning, owning commodities. Um, having said that, the confusion or the, the confusing element this year, um, so from the end of last year, certain commodities are really rebounding a little bit, and they are the Chinese sensitive commodities. So think iron ore, copper, they're the ones that are reacting to that uh, potential policy shift, an actual policy shift we've seen in China and the stimulus. So if we play that reopening trade like we did in 2020 and just think about China, it should benefit from that pent-up consumption, the supply-side disruption, tighter labour markets because companies are over-hiring workers. Um, China reopening should matter for those commodities. Now, the danger is um, China itself, um, maybe some of those commodities like copper have overshot. 
And more broadly is you can't get away from the rest of the world turning into um, recession. So I think that's why it's a bit more balanced this year, why the risks are actually um, overall to, to lower commodity prices. Having said that, we have gone into a period of the last 10 years or so of uh, actual underinvestment across a broad number of commodities. And so the supply side, although demand may drop, the supply side is, is again, in a difficult state. So like with interest rates, actually, you're in this uh, arguably a difficult environment where short term, it may be difficult given falling demand for commodities. But the setup for the next several years ahead, a bit like emerging markets, in an environment of underinvestment, low supply, when demand broadly does pick up, there's the chance actually for a big rally for commodities. And some of the commodities specifically targeted towards um the, the transition to electric vehicles and to uh, sort of climate change transition, uh, copper, lithium are really needed for a lot of batteries. Those commodities are really going to benefit. So I suppose there is definitely a long-term case. The shorter-term uh, difficulty is there. Um, so, so I suppose it is a balance of how you get that exposure within portfolios. And I think the way we're trying to balance it at the moment is not being broadly exposed to commodities, but having exposure to long, short managers who are actively looking in commodity markets, specifically energy markets, and exposure to active managers within uh, commodity futures trading managers, giving you long and short exposure to those commodities, where actually the trends are where you can can benefit from this type of um, uh, volatility in markets. So I think the next several years, we do expect broader commodities to be added back to portfolios and to help an environment of higher inflation. But at the moment, you need to be a bit more tactical and a bit more nimble. So commodities are uh, an important part of the productive process, as we know, and there are the cycles that exist within commodity production that, as you said, Robert, um, lead to these moments when we are we are short. And that's been going on all the time. And then when you overlay on that, the transition we are making towards uh, uh, more sustainable uh, sources of energy and raw materials and indeed of, of production. That's a, a fillet to demand for commodities. And I think one of the investing challenges that w- we think about both from, a, from an investment point of view and I guess from a, uh, a responsibility, broader responsibility point of view is, is, is how do you manage for the fact that we're going to need to consume uh, a, a, a lot more commodities and energy in order to get us towards that more sustainable place. Uh, but I think that that's probably a topic for another day, the challenges of investing responsibly uh, in a world that is making a transition. But So thank you for uh, joining us today. If you did enjoy the discussion, please do subscribe to Talking Capital. Thank you. Bye for now. <laughs>